thank you for that, uh, that great introduction. Can you all hear me back there? Yeah, I'm, I'm forswearing the uh, mic for now. Um, so I think I probably should amplify that uh, introduction a little bit. Uh, as a, Given that I'm an occasional diplomat and uh, renegade political scientist masquerading as an 18th century historian, I probably should explain my biography a little bit uh, to help explain what I'm on earth um, doing here, talking about this subject. So in uh, graduate school, uh, like most students of international relations, the, the relevant past that we all studied was the Second World War. Uh, the present was the Cold War, which we expected would go on more or less indefinitely. As uh, Professor Gavin's told you, from uh, 2007 to the very beginning of 2009, I was the counselor of the Department of State, uh, in which capacity I spent a lot of time fretting about the Taliban and the Iranian Revolutionary Guards Corps and Al-Qaeda in Iraq. And so after leaving government, I came back and finished a book on America's most persistent, effective, and important enemy of all, Canada. <laughs> the book is uh, called Conquered into Liberty. It deals with, uh, as the title suggests, almost two centuries of conflict along what Native Americans called the Great War Path. And I'm, I'm not going to kill you with PowerPoint. I'm just going to put up two maps. Uh, this is the Great War Path, as Native Americans called it, from Albany to Montreal, about 200 miles, uh, including Lake Champlain, the sixth Great Lake, they say, uh, and Lake George, and of course the Hudson River, really mainly a water route throughout the time that we're, that we're talking about. I'll put up just one more map. This is a map that was uh, drafted by the British in 1762 of almost exactly the same area. Montreal is just off the map and Albany is off it, but this is basically it, uh, which they actually reissued in 1775 as they realized that uh, things could get exciting in the, uh, in the North Country. <laughs> so uh, the point of the lecture is actually not to flog the book, although if you feel you have to buy it, I of course have no objection. <laughs> but what I would like to do is talk about a theme that I found myself getting more and more deeply into the longer I worked on it. And that is the theme of the deep origins of the American way of war. And to do that, I want to talk about three things. I want to say a few words about a great book with the title, The American Way of War, and some of the criticisms that have been leveled against it. Secondly, I want to dig a little bit deeper into the notion of what a way of war is. And finally, and this will be most of the lecture, offer you some thoughts along the lines that the, the deep origins of the American way of war lie in a protracted conflict with Canada, in which the Central Front was, for most of that period, that, that great war path threat. Well, the book I want to uh, talk about is Russell Wigley's classic book, uh, The American Way of War. Uh, it appeared in 1973. I think it's a, that's a significant date because he completed it just as the United States was withdrawing from Vietnam after that long, <coughs> bitter war. Wigley's argument, which I'm going to simplify a lot, is uh, something like this. He followed the great German military historian, Hans Delbruck, and saying basically there are two kinds of strategy out there. One which aims at overthrowing an opponent altogether. One much more limited that aims at attriting and exhausting him. In his telling, the American way of war began ambivalently. He said that George Washington, for example, was much more of a type two exhaustion kind of strategist than a type one overthrow kind of strategist. Uh, that Americans in the revolution had limited aims and used limited means, but that the war ended up much more as type one. And he argued that's where the American way of war is. Americans want, to put it simply, to crush an opponent, to achieve decisive victory, to sweep aside any constraints that get in the way of our doing so. And that, he argued, was as true of Franklin Delano Roosevelt as it was of Abraham Lincoln. The intellectual roots of this American way of war 
he finds the foundation of West Point and the cult of Napoleon, as was taught there in the early 19th century. And its practical basis was the Civil War. Widely, like most American military historians, really begins thinking about American military history in a serious way with the Civil War. Robert E. Lee, he correctly observes, was Napoleonic in, and I quote, his passion for the strategy of annihilation and the climactic, decisive battle as its expression. Although he also points out that that preference destroyed, in the end, not the enemy armies, but his own. Ulysses S. Grant was, for Russell Wively, the embodiment of the American way of war. Not so much in his quest for decisive battle, although there's that there too, but in the desire to annihilate an enemy altogether. And this annihilationist streak in American military history, he then traces through into the Plains Wars of the late 19th century, where he's a little bit closer to Texas, uh, through World War II, and to its, to his mind, completely inappropriate application in Vietnam. He concludes his book by saying that the cost of acceptable decisions at tolerable cost is now such that the history of useful <coughs> combat may at last be reaching its end. There's a whole spate of predictions like this in the 1970s, uh, as I recall. Uh, and of course, we've had uh, quite a few wars since then. Well, lots of people have taken shots at Widely, uh, including most recently, and I think he's at Texas A&M, so I should be careful about this, uh, the former uh, head of the Society of Military History, Brian Lynn. I won't go into all their criticisms, but I'll note a few. What widely describes as the American way of war could just as well be the German way of war, which also has this sort of annihilationist, decisive victory. The Germans call it Schlacht ohne Morgen, a battle without tomorrow um, feel to it, at least in the 20th century. That the dichotomy between annihilation and attrition is false. And in fact, Wigley's own discussion of Grant shows that. Grant, after all, aimed to annihilate by attrition. And in many ways, that's what he did. Uh, some historians have pointed out that Wigley substantially underestimates the defensive component of American strategy, as embedded, for example, in the uh, tremendous coastal defense schemes of the 19th century. I grew up in Boston. Uh, and if you sail around Boston Harbor, which is a delightful thing to do in the spring, summer, not so much in the winter, uh, you'll see layer upon layer of coastal fortifications built in several great waves through the 19th century, indeed, into the 20th century. Or you think about the Strategic Defense Initiative. That's also part of a long, actually quite a long tradition of American defensive approaches to strategy. Uh, and then others argue that the experience of Iraq and Afghanistan, Brian Lynn would say the war in the Philippines, all point to the fact that the American military has adapted to much more complex, limited forms of warfare. Those are all just criticisms, and I think one can add others. Widely, as uh, befitted somebody who was a truly great historian of the United States Army, was very, uh, very land force centric. And even somebody like me, with several generations of Army in the family, can admit that navies, air forces, and even Marines have played some modest role in emergency wars as well. Still, there's something, I think, to Wiley's argument. After all, what is sometimes known after uh, former chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, later Secretary of State Colin Powell, as the Powell Doctrine, the advocacy of overwhelming force deployed in a compressed period of time for very simple objectives, that, that sounds a lot like Wiley's American way of war. But Wigley's depiction is indeed limited. As one critic says, it's much more about a way of battle than a way of war. On the other hand, I think one can argue that Wigley was onto something. So the question is, what might we think about that? Well, that brings me to the second part of my remarks. What exactly is a way of war? Well. Uh, at the risk, again, of oversimplifying, let me say it's this. It's a characteristic, long-term pattern of responses to military challenges. And I would argue three things shape a way of war. First is geopolitics. The places where, the enemies against whom, and the stakes for which one fights. So geopolitics. Secondly, domestic politics and society. 
how, how we're governed, what values our society holds. And thirdly, military institutions, practices, and cultures. Those are three very different kinds of structural considerations, I think, that shape an approach to warfare. If we think this broadly, we can see, I think, that a way of war is about something much more than battle. It's about strategic preferences. It's about operational style. It's about organizational habits. Is there a British way of war, for example? Well, following the great British military historian, Michael Howard, I would say yes. Uh, it is conditioned by an awareness of limited resources and a certain degree of ambivalence about operating on the continent of Europe while at the same time defending global interests. It's predicated on a very distinctive social order which has, for example, given birth to the British Army's regimental system. It is by and large expeditionary and it's very comfortable indeed with limited objectives and cutting one's losses. By the way, you know, I really saw this in British interactions with us over Iraq and Afghanistan. Very different from the American, the American approach. Is there a Russian way of war? Well, I would also say so. Conditioned by both threats and opportunities on a vast, relatively flat geography, historically at least a wealth of human resources, and for a variety of reasons, a pretty high level of tolerance for expending those human resources. And I think you can argue that yielded up a certain Russian way of war. Is there an Israeli way of war? Yes, again, I would say. One shaped by an overwhelming consciousness of an existential threat, a very complex military her heritage, and traditionally, for a whole bunch of reasons, which I could go into if you wished, an urge to find some short-term practical solutions to immediate problems rather than dwell on concepts or doctrine or longer-term solutions to those problems. Very well, what then is the American way of war and what are its deep origins? So let me begin with what seems to me the most important of all criticisms to be made of Wiley, and indeed of most American military historians today. And that is their disregard for almost all of our military history before the Civil War. If you have any doubt about that, uh, let me urge that you pay a visit to the Army War College in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. And that you go and look at the artwork uh, in the corridors of the main building, Root Hall. You will find yourselves in Civil War heaven. You know? Lots of kitschy paintings of Stonewall Jackson, Robert E. Lee, Elizabeth Grant, Philip Sheridan. Uh, and then a lot of stuff about World War II, some stuff Vietnam, maybe Persian Gulf, very little before the Civil War. Wiley's book, at least in theory, began in 1775, although his, his chapters on the early period are quite tentative, in part, I think, because he realized that the story of the Revolution did not, the War of American Independence, perhaps, did not fit his idea of the American way of war. The War of 1812, whose uh, bicentennial the Canadians at least are celebrating, uh, he dismisses as a one gigantic screw-up, by and large is what it was. Uh, Winfield Scott and the Mexican War, he sees as merely as a prelude to the real conflict, Civil War. So his, the way he looks at the Mexican War is as a kind of incubator of the talent that then appeared in the Civil War. And I think most of Wiley's critics don't do a lot better than that. I mean, in many ways, we love the Civil War because there are none of those foreigners that intrude into it. We get to have a war all by ourselves uh, with nobody whose languages we really have to learn uh, in order to understand it. So here's my cut at this issue. Uh, the deep origins of the American way of war is that it stems from the protracted conflict between the English colonies that became the United States and Canada, or rather, the imperial powers that ruled Canada, and that the central front of this conflict was indeed the Great War Pact. What are some, some of the key features of this way of war as it, uh, as it emerged? Well, let's begin with the first, international engagement. Um, and let's start with a critical point. America's wars are very much and here the Civil War is a huge exception, the products of an ongoing, indeed global, engagement in international politics that began with the European settlement in North America. 
We call the conflict of 1914 to 1918 World War I. Not so. It was World War VII. Before that, you had the Nine Years' War at the end of the 17th century, the wars of the Spanish and then the Austrian succession, the Seven Years' War, the Global War, you forget that, engendered by the American Revolution, and a whole series of wars brought about by the French Revolution and Napoleonic Empire. Each of these were global conflicts, with Great Britain and France as two of the primary contestants. All of them, all of them, played out in North America. They had different names of the colonies, King William's War, Queen Anne's War, King George's War, the French and Indian War, the War of Independence, the Quasi-War, the War of 1812. But they were all part of, and either contributed to, or in several cases actually triggered those other conflicts. Moreover, an eighth very large war, an Anglo-American war over Canada, might easily have occurred in the mid-19th century, particularly during the American Civil War, but to some extent even before that. So here's the first key point. The American way of war is very much about international politics and always has been. It has been about engaging Europeans as well as Native Americans. It has been about high international policy and not just expansion across the continent. It is secondly a composite way of war. Students of the history of religion often speak of syncretic faiths religious systems that result from the blending together of several different cults. Well, Americans have a syncretic way of war. In particular, the American way of war originated in a hybrid of conventional and unconventional conflict along the frontier. Those world wars, as fought out in North America, were not simply frontier conflicts with the Indians. They were, instead, conflicts with a very diverse enemy composed of regulars, provincial troops, Canadians in particular, and, of course, Indians. On the one hand, throughout the 18th century, American forces, American colonial forces, followed the British playbook in terms of organization, code of military justice, rank structure, and tactics. And that, I would argue, is precisely why it was possible for the Americans to create a continental army actually remarkably quickly, although it took several years to standardize its practices. This pattern of seeking to create regular forces for large conventional operations begins early in our history with the assault on Quebec in 1690, the successful siege of Louisbourg on Cape Breton Island in what's now Nova Scotia in 1745, and the American role in the disastrous assault on Fort Ticonderoga in 1758, where most of the 15,000 strong army, the largest army until that time deployed in North America, uh, was, in fact, American. But at the same time, the history of frontier warfare was a history of irregular conflict, sometimes on its own, sometimes in support of much more conventional operations. The raiding of Robert Rogers, founder of the famous Rangers, are, of course, a very good example of this. And one cannot understand the history of the Central Front in the French and Indian War, the Great War Path, without understanding that. A third key element of these conflicts, the notion captured the title of my book that one can and should conquer into liberty. Now that phrase comes from a pamphlet that was scattered about Canada in advance of the invasion of that country in 1775. 1775, that's before we declared independence. It was an act of subversive warfare. Uh, this writing of a pamphlet, pamphlet was written in French uh, and covertly distributed throughout what's now Quebec by American secret agents. Uh, and it, it rattled the British no end. It had, it had rather less impact, unfortunately, on the habitants, the French peasants of uh, Canada, who unfortunately, almost all of whom were illiterate. Uh, so there's kind of a lesson for budding psychological warfare types uh, there. What's interesting, though, and, and the pamphlet begins, you have been conquered into liberty been conquered into liberty, which is a really interesting idea. What's interesting in all this, I think, is how Americans approach the problem of dealing with a different nationality and a religious faith to which most New Englanders and New Yorkers, who were the people invading Canada, were deeply hostile. George Washington orchestrated the invasion of Canada in 1775, uh, two separate uh, armies, one going along the traditional Great Warpath route, 
one led by Benedict Arnold marching through Maine on uh, Quebec. Um, and it's quite interesting. He ordered his subordinates, he, he went to great pains to order them to control their soldiers' deep-seated mistrust of the French Catholic Church, which was very deep-seated indeed. This, these people had experienced generations of not just warfare, but massacre uh, along the, the frontier. And this is what Washington wrote to them. He says, while we are contending for our own liberty, we should be very cautious of violating the rights of conscience in others, ever considering that God alone is the judge of the hearts of men, and to him only in this case they are answerable. Now, what's interesting about this is Washington was motivated by some very hard-headed notions about power. He wanted to invade Canada because he wanted to push Great Britain off the North American continent. But I think the sentiments that he expressed in that letter of instruction to uh, Arnold and to Richard Montgomery uh, were sincere as well. By the way, the last thing Washington wanted was for the French to come back to Canada. Uh, and he double-crossed his protege, the admiring Marquis de Lafayette, in order to make sure that wouldn't happen. Uh, it's a story I tell in the book, and I can share that with you if you're interested. Well, the invasion did not uh, go all that well. We nearly got Quebec, uh, but uh, it failed when Montgomery was killed and Arnold badly wounded in the assault. Uh, we didn't give up easily on that one, though. In March of 1776, Congress sent their most able statesman, Benjamin Franklin, then 70 years old, north, again along the Great Warpath route, to rescue the floundering invasion. Uh, you have to think about this, a 70-year-old guy in the 18th century traveling in the North Country <laughs> in March. And anybody who's ever been up in the Lake Champlain area in March or April knows it's no fun even with Polar Tech and Gore-Tex and all the stuff that we have now. And, and in fact, uh, Franklin at one point thinks he's, this is just going to kill him, and he begins writing farewell letters. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Congress had instructed Franklin to instruct Canadians about the nefarious schemes of Parliament, the true principles of free government, uh, setting up committees of safety, and the rights of habeas corpus. And then, his letter of instruction continues, you were to establish a free press, and give directions for the frequent publication of such pieces as may be of service to the cause of the United Colonies. <laughs> well, uh, and there was no evident sense of irony in that, in that letter. I would argue many times American strategists have been impaled on just that kind of dilemma. During the Civil War, during the World Wars, most recently in Iraq and Afghanistan. A fourth feature of the American way of war was what widely rightly identified as the extreme inclination of Americans to finish the job thoroughly and go home. Where does that come from? Well, once again, I would argue the conflict with Canada. The exceptionally bloody frontier conflicts of the late 17th and 18th century determined American statesmen and many of the English officials sent here to finish off Canada as a political entity without wishing to eliminate the Canadians as a people. By the way, the same might be said of most American attitudes to Native Americans. In 1693, the governor of New York already insisted that the only sensible strategic objective that uh, the colonies could have was the annihilation of Canada as a political entity. And that purpose never went away. The American colonists, particularly the elites of New England and New York, were determined that the Seven Years' War would end with the elimination of a French political presence in North America. Uh, and by the way, many of the same statesmen, including most notably and most interestingly Benjamin Franklin, had precisely the same view of the British political presence after the War of Independence. This is the one way in which Franklin failed in his diplomatic mission at the end of uh, the war, negotiating the, the uh, peace treaty with the British. He really wanted to get them out of Canada, and he failed in that regard. In a similar way, the purpose of pushing the British entirely out of North America animated American strategy in the Revolution, as I've mentioned, and also in the War of 1812, which begins with a number of botched invasions of Canada uh, by our side. Conflict for limited advantage has, I think, never set well in the United States, and I suspect it never will. That's partly because we're wealthy and strong enough to do it that way, but also, I think, in part because of our experience of warfare in the deep past. 
I've always maintained uh, that the most dangerous words in the American military lexicon are whatever it takes. <coughs> Phrase one frequently hears if one hangs around with soldiers. I think it represents an approach to war that melds several of these points. It's partly about the quest for decision, partly about levels of effort, partly about flexibility in means. In the short interval between the D-Day landings and his uh, forced suicide, Erwin Rommel began writing a memoir in which he commented on American soldiers' disregard for theory and precedent and on the speed with which they adapted to modern warfare. Again, I think some of the origins of this ruthless pragmatism lie in the colonial past. It lies in campaigns conducted year-round, not stopping for the winter, including in the truly horrible conditions of upstate New York in the winter. It lies in improvised inland fleets built twice on Lake Champlain, as well as on Lakes Ontario and Erie, as well as in the spectacular amphibious operation that took the fortress city of Louisbourg. It lies as well in the challenges of moving and operating in the woodland environment, while at the same time preparing for open European-style warfare. What this also meant, though, was a certain disregard of doctrine and conventional practice, or at least a very mixed attitude towards it, which I would argue prevails to this day. It is, in some ways, if you'll forgive me, a somewhat anti-intellectual approach, which is not in any way to suggest that it's a bad one. Two final legacies of the American way of war. The first is the logistical imperative. From the very outset, Americans wrestled with the problem of projecting force in very inhospitable environments. And some of the greatest American successes came from mastering the challenge of sustaining forces that were, for their time, very substantial indeed in the wilderness. Major General Philip Schuyler in the 1777 campaign that defeated the British invasion from Canada is a very good example of this. And by the way, he learned his trade as a logistician doing exactly the same thing 20 years earlier in the war with the French. Second element is the ambivalent relationship between the professional and the citizen soldier. Brigadier James Wolfe, the conqueror of Quebec. The Americans are in general the dirtiest, most contemptible, cowardly dogs that you can imagine. That was the nicest thing he had to say about uh, provincial troops, uh, and he was not alone. He despised American soldiers, particularly provincials and above all the militia, who chose their own officers, thought that they were bound by contracts with their government, and who resented the standard discipline of the day. Well, the part-time soldiers of the colonial militia became the National Guard, and quite a few units traced their lineage back to the colonial past, and not just the militia either. The 75th Ranger Regiment harks back to Robert Rogers and his Rangers in upstate New York, and if I'm not mistaken, his rules of ranging, or at least a kind of edited version of them, are still uh, distributed at the U.S. Army's Ranger School at Fort Benning. Well, the point is a lot of American history throughout the 19th and 20th century involved a great deal of tension between professionals and part-time soldiers. Uh, and again, this goes back to the colonial past. Uh, in our day, it's largely been resolved by the dominance of a professional elite. But it is still remarkable how much of the legacy of the citizen soldier survives. To include the, that anachronistic phrase, bring the troops home. Which, if you think about it, when you're talking about a professional military, makes about as much sense as bring the diplomats home. Well, I could go on, but you get the point. A way of war is a complicated thing, and in this country, at any rate, its roots go deep. The last thing I want to talk about is how this way of war gets perpetuated. No question that it evolves. The very fact that we no longer have a continental army to cope with, of course, is critical. And so, too, are the many, many technical changes in the art of war, such as those which, for example, make a mass mobilization army of the kind that we had for the world wars and the civil war virtually inconceivable. But one thing that has not changed is the way in which fundamental assumptions about war and how to wage it get passed on. And that is very simply by individual officers whose careers span conflicts and who in turn influence others. 
I've already mentioned that Philip Schuyler got his start in the Seven Years' War. So did many American leaders in the War of Independence, Washington, of course, most notably. The spans of some of these careers are quite remarkable. The Battle of Plattsburgh in 1814, one of the battles I discuss in the uh, book, was arguably decisive in persuading the British government that it could not successfully project power into the North American heartland. It was both a maritime and a land battle. The leader of U.S. Army riflemen who harassed the invading British columns was Major John Wool. The engineer who designed the excellent fortifications of the town of Plattsburgh was a major by the name of Joseph Totten. In 1862, in 1862, almost 50 years later, Major General John Wool commanded the Eastern Department of the United States and was partly responsible for the calamitous fall of Harper's Ferry to Stonewall Jackson. Major, Major General Joseph Totten was the chief engineer of the United States Army. He built the fortifications around Washington, D.C. He was carrying on a lively correspondence with the chief engineer of the British Army, John Fox Burgoyne, who was none other than the illegitimate son of the John Burgoyne who had invaded uh, the United States in 1777. In their youth, Wool and Totten knew men who had fought in the War of American Independence, as did Winfield Scott, who towered over American military history for over half of the 19th century. The point is that these individuals, in ways that are sometimes difficult to trace, shaped the generations that succeeded them much as General Jack Pershing shaped the generation that led the Army into World War II. He, in turn, was shaped by the veterans of the Civil War, who led the Army at the end of the 19th century. And in the same way, the leaders of the American military in the early dec first decade of the 21st century were, I think, very powerfully influenced by the veterans of Vietnam who built, or rather rebuilt, the services in the 1970s and 1980s. And this is one of the reasons why the notion of an American way of war is important. The United States is in the midst of a protracted withdrawal from the wars that marked the first decade of this century. But unless international politics has changed in ways that would be hard to believe, war, or at least the potential for it, is not going to go away. Today's officers, and for that matter politicians too, are passing on certain notions about war that have been colored by our experiences in Afghanistan, Iraq, elsewhere. That's not entirely unproblematic. It's as important to know what not to pass on as what to convey. And it's as important to look for what is new as to be shaped by what's old. One of the great purposes of education is the cultivation of self-awareness. I think it is only by understanding one's own roots that one can hope to amend, improve, or even transcend them. One, uh, one final thought. Um, a friend uh, described Concord into Liberty as a love note to the Great Warpath. And maybe it is that. I've been traveling that area since I was a boy on both sides of the border. I've walked the grounds of every single one of the, uh, uh, the battles that I write about to include snowshoeing the battle on snowshoes, uh, which was a great experience. But I think it's, it's particularly important as we take stock after two bitter wars that we are willing to look more deeply into our past, to include that past. And that includes not only the way in which we approach war, but the peoples and the countries alongside whom we have waged it. In the final chapter of Conquered into Liberty, I refer back to the end of the War of 1812. Um, and I discuss the Peace of Ghent, which very few, including our chief negotiator, that brilliant, crusty, Dure Bostonian John Quincy Adams thought would last. Pretty much everybody thought, this is a truce. This is not really a peace. On January 5th, 1815, Adams, uh, who was relieved that the final excruciatingly tedious dinner given by the mayor of Ghent was coming to an end, it was a big dinner for both delegations, proposed a toast. And being classically educated, he invoked the Roman custom of closing the gates of the Temple of Janus. Uh, on those rather infrequent occasions when the Roman Republic was at peace and opening them in times of war. His toast was to Ghent, the city of peace. May the gates of the Temple of Janus, here closed, 
not be opened again for a century. So if you'll uh, forgive an author's vanity, let me read to you the last paragraph of Concord Into Liberty. Adams turned out to be uncannily correct in his forecast. A century after the Treaty of Ghent, the doors of Janus did indeed swing open again, but not where they had closed in Adams' time along the Great Warpath, but rather in the country and not far from the town where the grumpy commissioners had signed a peace treaty in which they had only slender confidence. And in the conflagration that followed, in the Second World War after that, in a cold war and smoldering struggles against murderous fanatics and megalomaniacal dictators, those nations that had fought one another along the Great War path, Frenchmen, Englishmen, Scots, native inhabitants of the New World, and above all, Americans and Canadians, new peoples who had founded two vast liberal democracies, found themselves not enemies, but the closest of allies. It was an outcome that, one suspects, would have elicited at least a grim smile from that most sober Thank you very much. Let me take any questions. And I think I'm going to give preference to students, faculty only in the last resort. So, Dr. Cohen, you assert that, uh, that a professional military belongs abroad, just a comparison to the foreign service. I assume that means stationed abroad as opposed to expeditionary forces, more or less. Uh, not necessarily. All, all I, the only point I was making is that that phrase, bring the troops home, yeah. and that's really an echo of the world wars. When you had you know, mass mobilization of people who were conscripted and sent overseas to fight for their country, or same thing Vietnam, and the logical thing to do was to get them back home as soon again as possible again so they could live their lives. When you have a professional military, that's really not the point, and it really... That kind of anachronistic, it, it's as anachronistic as calling American soldiers GIs. The GIs, that's again a World War I, World War II term from general issue. Uh, you know, when you first got your, uh, your issue of kit, uh, when you came in, they're not GIs. They're volunteers and they're professionals. And so you should think about them differently. My, the point that I'm making is... You know, uh, somebody once said, the past isn't over, it's not even past. <laughs> the past is still very much with us. And it shapes all kinds of attitudes and all kinds of frameworks. It gives us all kinds of shorthands. During the first Gulf, the run-up to the first Gulf War, somebody in the White House uh, who was concerned about General Norman Schwarzkopf said, uh, and this may have been Red Scowcroft, but I've never confirmed it, uh, that, you know, he seems a lot like George McClellan a Civil War reference. Schwarzkopf went right through the roof. And he was a guy who really knew how to go right through the roof. Uh, he was very good at it. And the point is that you know, this, this reference to a soldier from a war, what will the, help me out here, about 130 years past, still you know, has a kind of hold on you. That's a shorthand, uh, rather insulting shorthand, for a particular kind of general. And, and um, that's really all I'm trying to say. I, I have no particular position on what the size of the forces we have stationed in Europe should be. Or, I mean, actually, I'm glad we kept forces stationed in Europe for decades and decades and decades. Or in Korea, too. I mean, it's been a good thing. But is that uh, a vocal part of the American way of war, that the troops should always be overseas permanently? Um, I don't know. I, I just as somebody who's... It depends on where... Uh, and it depends on what for what purposes. But do I have any problems with keeping, you know, lots of Americans deployed in Europe or Japan or Korea? No, I think it's just fine, and I think it's made the world a safer place. But that's a that's a prudential kind of political strategic judgment. It, it's I'm not saying that there's something automatic that says you have to have lots of troops deployed overseas. I'm just saying my, my point is really rather different. It's that our attitudes <coughs> really remain colored by earlier experiences in ways which we are frequently not completely conscious of. I have a question, yep. sir. Uh, I'll, 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 I'll get you in a moment, Professor uh, Goltz. Sure. Um, so, uh, thank you. It was a very uh, interesting and clear talk. Uh, laid out a lot, of, a lot of things, including one of the objections that the American way of war is very land power focused, which 
is obviously true in the deep history of your book as well. Um, uh, I like another one of your articles. I've cited a couple of these to you uh, in the past day, but uh, uh, the mystique of American air power, um, which strikes me as there's something different about the contemporary American way of war, which is um, uh, we like decisive victory, but we like decisive victory that's very precise, uh, uh, quick, not a lot of people die. We, we, the idea of air power is that we can do it without slogging it out. So it's decisively getting away from annihilation of forces and, and the complete victory. It's making it war, not battle. And it sounds very different to me. Like once we've got this technological fetish in the modern era, very different from what you're talking about in the Great War Path and the old American way of war. So I was wondering if you could yeah, well, uh, I mean, I would have to confess that the role of air power in uh, the 18th and 19th century was yeah. limited. Uh, <laughs> uh, I mean, that's, uh, you know, that's pretty hard to dispute. Uh, although, but I, I put it somewhat different as to I think uh, part of the American fascination with air power really does reflect a, a technological society uh, that's thinking about technology solutions. And I think, again, that goes back quite quite a bit. Now, for, let's take one example uh, that I, I write about, which is uh, Plattsburgh in 1814. The initial plan was to put on Lake Champlain uh, the first steamship that really would have been a warship. Turned out to be too difficult to do, but the, the impulse was to do that. I think you already see the technological impulse actually quite early on. Where does Eli Whitney get his start, you know? With making interchange muskets from interchangeable parts uh, and trying to trying to plot that, there, there's even at the time of the War of Independence, but I would say more so by the time of the War of 1812 uh, and in the early federal period. You know, for example, we, why do we decide to build these frigates, any one of which can really overmatch their British counterpart? And there are a lot of more minor naval uh, innovations <coughs> like that that Americans really push very hard on. I think that technological impulse is there really quite quite early on. And it doesn't really come into full flower until the 20th century, although you see a lot in the Civil War, you know. Railroads, uh, the use of telegraph, and uh, so on. So I, I, that's the context in which I'm talking Yes, ma'am. Yes, well, I'm sort of a peace activist. I want to recommend to you a very good book written by a Canadian. They're smart, and it's called The Myth of the good war. Okay, now, well, I, 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 I appreciate that, but I'm really here to lecture about I, American well, military I history. Think, let me continue. I tend to think that maybe World War II was necessary. Maybe. But my question, and I will have a question. Well, could you, if you could get us, I think there are other people I, who want uh, to ask questions. Are we going to continue to ignore Eisenhower's warning? That's my question. Uh, you know, I think Eisenhower said what he said about the military-industrial complex in a very different context, right. which was a, a world in which, among other things, the United States was spending 10% plus of its GNP on defense rather than something like 4%. Um, and so it was, I think it was a different, different kind of world. Yes, sir. As the country tries to figure out how to square being the commitments of being the dominant world power and budget reality, Risen again, something we touched on a struggle between the active duty and the militia or the National Guard yep. for budget share in simple terms. Yep. What perspective can the long view of history put on that newly emergent or re emergent struggle? Well, that's an interesting question. Uh, just to kind of reinforce the point, uh, we now have, as a member of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, a reserve force, or National Guard force, right? The Chief of the National no. Guard Bureau. What? The Chief of the National Guard right. Bureau. Right. Yeah. This is insane. No other country in the world would do that. I mean, it is a, it is a completely unparalleled thing to do, to say, basically, we have to have a representative of the militia as a member of our Joint Chiefs of Staff business. You cannot name another country in the world which does it. The reason why we have it is because of that very deeply rooted militia tradition which turned into the National Guard tradition. I'm not saying it's wrong. I actually think it's a good idea. But, um, uh, but quite apart from that, what it tells you is something about the power of that tradition. 
big mistake I think that the um, professional military made for a long time was, and this I think a lot of this grew out of the Civil War experience, although as I tried to indicate, this goes pretty deeply. We really don't like the National Guard very much. Now it's different. I think the Air Force actually has been better, but that's in part because it's a little bit easier to plug them into the system. But those tensions are there and are long-standing. I think the only thing that's different is if you look at the long, at the arc of American history, what used to be the militia then became the National Guard has increasingly been professionalized. And if you look at just what the, the amount of service time that people have in, the fact that we're willing to send these people overseas, I mean, in the, that would not have been acceptable at all in the 17th and 18th century. It wasn't entirely acceptable for some parts of the South in the 19th century during the Civil War. You know, there were units from North Carolina which felt that it was not right to go into the North, that they were there to defend the South, but, but that's not what they had signed up for. Uh, and historians have written about this, the contractual notion of military obligation in the 18th, in the 18th century. So, um, it's there. I'm, I don't know how we're going to uh, sort our way out of this one, but what I, what I will say is, you know, I, I suspect that it's going to be some time before we send a large force overseas. I would not, never rule it out. I just think the world is too unpredictable. Um, and so, actually, if you look at what we are likely to use, it'll be more of a regular force augmented with reserve and National Guard units which have very special kinds of skills. But beyond that, I can't really, I don't really have wisdom to offer. Uh, yes? Okay, this is just kind of a, a hypothetical, I don't know, I mean, take this question as you will, but um, also in the history of the United States is a, is a focus on isolationism. So is, do you see any link between the Americans' desire to be able to win and dominate and overwhelm and wars uh, to a desire to not get in, into wars that we may not be able to do that around the world? I, uh, I mean, the larger, one of the larger points I'm trying to make is that we are, history is much less characterized by isolationism than people think it is. Uh, that what, the, what were the colonies, what was the United States, was actually deeply engaged in international policy. You cannot understand the early federal period if you don't realize how large the problem of dealing with Britain and France and Spain loomed in the minds of Jefferson, you know, different ways, Adams, Hamilton, Washington, I mean, all those guys, they were preoccupied with international politics. Uh, we got, you know, you can ask, ask the Mexicans whether we were isolationist in the 1840s. Um, and really, through the, through the Civil War, you know, one, one of the reasons why we don't go to war against the British is Abraham Lincoln is reputed to have said, to his Secretary of State, one war at a time, Mr. Seward. Uh, but, it, but it could have happened. It could have happened. You know, I think we then go into a, a period, well, but even in the 19th century, you know, we're out there in the Pacific. I mean, we didn't just stumble across the Philippines and Cuba and those places. But I think what people have done is they've really read too much of, um, into our past of the um, right after World War I. Although even there, if you look at economic diplomacy, the United States is still very much, is still very much out there. So I, I think this idea that the United States has primarily been a power that's been isolationist, uh, or where that's really been the preferred uh, approach is, is not true. I don't think it's true that the United States had a period, long period of free security provided by the Royal Navy. Um, I don't think that's, that's right either. Uh, we had different approaches to how to deal with our security, but you know, I just think there's this kind of fundamental misreading, caused in part by not taking a big enough, big enough view. I do want to favor students, so if there's students, yeah. I, uh, you remarked in your in your comments about self-awareness and how it's uh, it's uh, really the pursuit. Education is about the pursuit of self-awareness, and I, I look at self-awareness as understanding what you know understanding as importantly what you don't know and recognizing when you need to change. In, in your opinion, uh, is our government, and perhaps more particularly our military, uh, has, our, has our government and our military leadership 
progressed in a self-awareness way over the past 10 years, since 9-11 really, uh, 13 years since, since uh, we, we began that conflict. Um, and have we, have we recognized the need to change in the way we wage war? Uh, and are we, are, we, are we making that change fast enough? Uh, I would say uh, yes, but more importantly, no. Um, uh, yes, in the sense that if you look at American forces in the field, and I had the uh, privilege of being able to visit them a lot for uh, a couple of years, um, you do see a lot of adaptation and change, and depending on the commanders and so forth. Uh, if you look at the mountains of studies that have been done, things like the report of the uh, Special Inspector General on Iraq, Sigur, uh, there's a lot of useful stuff there. But no, I think in the largest sense. Um, early on, I was sending to friends in, my gar in, uh, in the gar government uh, Robert Comer's very depressing Rand monograph uh, called Bureaucracy Does Its Thing, which he wrote after coming back from Vietnam. And I think he published it in 1971, something like that. Uh, and you see a lot of the same kinds of things. Um, you know, I'll, I'll start with the department that I was part of, a state. Uh, you know, we, we, for a time, created in Iraq and Afghanistan, we're moving in the direction of having foreign service officers who are quite expeditionary, who are quite comfortable serving alongside the military. I think the system's kind of returning to its uh, steady state. Uh, same thing is true of AID. AID, which um, you know, basically has become a, an organization that hires contractors to do various things, whether or not ultimately there makes good sense from the point of view of, of counterinsurgency. And I would be very critical of the military. Um, first, just a mechanical level, one of the things that's incredibly disheartening is: Do you know what they're doing with the hard drive? What they've done with the hard drives of computers from divisional headquarters and stuff as they've come back from Iraq and Afghanistan. They've wiped them. So the military historians are going crazy because they're just wiping out vast amounts of data. Uh, but more importantly, I think there are a lot of ways in which I would, I mean, all the institutions of government, quite apart from the individuals, which is a different matter, you know, really should hold a mirror up to themselves and ask themselves, for example, why is it that we decided that would be a good idea to rotate divisional and core headquarters in Iraq. That is to say, you know, it'll be 4th Division one year and 10th Mountain Division another year. Rather than create divisional headquarters which would, so that you have a complete turnover of personnel and at higher levels too. Rather than having those headquarters be reasonably stable and rotate in individual replacements or you know, very small packets of people so you retain some sort of institutional knowledge. Why is it that we allowed uh, the war in Afghanistan to be fought by, by my count, at least seven different organizations? None of which were really cooperating with each other all that much. You know, you know, all my military friends tell me about this thing called unity of command. And when I would call them on that, uh, they said, well, this is all very different, and so we don't really have to fret about that. And I, I have not really detected, particularly at the more senior levels, the, the desire to kind of look very closely at our performance and say, what did we get right, what did we get wrong? There's a tendency to blame other, you know, each department of government will blame the other. We do that. Uh, there'll be a lot of blame pointed at individuals. That's not entirely inappropriate, but but that only goes so far. But I don't get a sense of really um, demanding institutional self-criticism. Sir? Another historian who takes a very long view, as you do, of, of military experience on this continent, but approaches it from quite different angles, is Kevin Phillips mm -hmm. with Cousins Wars. Yeah. Uh, and his thesis is that this has its origins in the English Civil War. It's roundheads and cavaliers, and it goes all the way through the Revolutionary War, War of 1812, Civil War. And I'm just, if he's right, then there isn't something which is distinctly American, except possibly the geography. And I'm just wondering how you, what you think of his work and how uh, the two I, I, theses I, You know, I just, I, it's never been convincing to me, because as far as I can tell, you know, 
was Americans shooting at Frenchmen and uh, Native Americans and Canadians uh, for a good part of the 18th century. And you know, in different parts of the United States, you have, um, or what, what becomes the United States, you have very different cultures, as he points out. But I mean, he's not the only one. Somebody like David Hackett Fisher, I think, has done a much more thorough job of documenting the different kind of pieces of Great Britain that get transplanted here. And, and more importantly, I think, particularly in the War of Independence, you begin to see conscious efforts to transcend that. Uh, the the, the um, example of that, which has always struck with me, is George Washington, uh, who, as in many ways, was sort of the trailblazer. Uh, when he first shows up to take command of the Continental Army outside Boston, in 1775, as a good Virginia gentleman, he is appalled by what he sees. <laughs> old men, you have boys, you have free Negroes. What is that all about? Uh, these people are electing their officers. Uh, I mean, they talk funny. <laughs> they are many of them are quite low church, you know. <laughs> and and if you look at his first letters back to Martha, he's just appalled by these people. And he's going to try, they their ideas of field sanitation are rudimentary. Remember, Washington had served alongside the Brits, so he knew how to dig latrines, or at least he knew how to order people to dig latrines. Um, but he very quickly decides, you know what, I'm the first American. So what he does at that point is he designates uh, that his, the lifeguard, his bodyguard, will consist entirely of New Englanders, commanded by a New Englander. And that was the case throughout the whole war. And that was a very, he was doing that, as with so much else of George Washington, completely with malice aforethought. I mean, this is a guy who understood the power of symbols. And that was one of the, the early, very important symbolic decisions that he makes. He said, I'm going to show you we're all Americans. And the best way to show that is I'm going to put my life in the hand of a bunch of Yankees. Well, it's in some ways a follow-up on, on uh, Professor Galba's question, although from a different angle. So I'm interested in this theme of, as we discuss learning from history, and especially the case studies of when there's a historical episode involving multiple actors, uh, how do, what lessons do the different actors necessarily take away? So my specific question here is, all these conflicts along the Great War path, um, did they at all influence the Canadian way of war? And did they do it in a different way than they shaped the American way of war? Oh, that's really interesting. I think the um, basically what happens to the Canadians uh, by the end of the conquest is they've just had it. And um, they really sit the revolution out. This is, I'm talking about the French Canadians. There were small English-speaking communities in Montreal, of course in uh, Nova Scotia, which has been settled by Scots, and, uh, actually, and a lot of people from Massachusetts, truth to tell. Um, but they basically sit this one out. They're neither, uh, the, the British make the mistake of thinking that they've won these people over by um, giving a lot of privileges to the church and to the seigneur, the, you know, the local gentry. Of course, the peasants can't stand the seigneur, and they don't have a whole lot more use for the church either when you get right down to it. Um, but they don't rally to the British side. What's really important, I think, from the Canadian point of view is the experience of the War of 1812. Now, I mean, if you're interested in the war and memory stuff, it's very interesting to travel around Canada, which I've been doing a fair bit of in uh, connection with this book. They are very, they are paying a lot of attention to the War of 1812. If you go up to Ottawa, that place is now decorated in War of 1812. I mean, there are exhibits, there are lectures, there, uh, and, and it's not entirely unreasonable because what the War of 1812 gives them is incidents like the Battle of Shadow Gay which is a battle in which you have a French commander, Charles de Salaberry, uh, with, uh, with some of the habitants, also, but also with English speakers, some of whom are um, descendants of the uh, loyalists, who you know, we chased up there, and what they would call First Nations. And I think the, now, some of this, Literary critics would say constructed. Yes, uh, yes, but but there is something, there is something to it, and the, and I think it's in the War of 1812 that you begin to see, you know, the coming together of a national identity. It's not particularly, I would say, 
a way of war necessarily, but it, it begins that way. For the Canadians, real way of war emerges, I think, with, in, with the, the searing experience of the First World War. If you go to, say, I was just up at uh, Royal Military College Kingston, which is kind of their combination of West Point and the Naval Postgraduate School, the dominant theme is war, World War I. That's what the you know, stuff on the walls is and all that sort of stuff. Gentlemen over there, yeah. Sure. Are we in a, a different era, truly? And will it take a amount of time for it to seep into the teachings in the war colleges or the military academies? I mean, what do you see different now with visitation building? Uh, or attempt at that with Iraq? Can you describe more what you see going forward and how it can be different? In, in terms of what, what we will do? Yeah, what we will do, the lessons learned or not learned. Uh, you know, I'm always very wary of lessons, of the idea of lessons learned, because I'm not sure that they're really ever lessons. I mean, I think that the most important learning that can be done would be a very honest assessment of how our institutions adapted or failed to adapt on all kinds of things. Uh, language instruction. You know, I once took it into my head to try to figure out how many Pashto speakers the Department of State had. And the answer was nine. Uh, including a janitor, an IT specialist, I mean, you know, all kinds of people who had grown up speaking Pashto but weren't being used for that purpose. I asked how many were in the training pipeline, they said two. So, you know, there, right there you have a problem. Now, why, why does the Department of State, why didn't the Department of State train lots of people to speak Pashto, which is what a lot of Afghans and a lot of people in Pakistan speak? Well, it's because there aren't that many assignments in peacetime in Afghanistan or Pakistan. So why give somebody a language that's only going to be useful in one place where there isn't a particularly large embassy? And, and you know, I had a very senior official, the, the, the most senior career diplomat, say that to me. I said, well, it's only important if you think it's important to win the war. But you, know, uh, <laughs> but, but you, might, but you might, want to, might want to think about that. So I think there'll be, there'll be all kinds of things about ourselves that, we'll, um, that, that we will learn. In terms of what we do going ahead, I mean, that really takes us into the realm of foreign policy. And I would just say, I think we are living in an extraordinarily unpredictable time where, uh, I mean, I am a glass half empty kind of guy, but, uh, you know, I, I have no idea what the consequences will be if the Iranians really do get over the threshold of nukes. I really have no idea what it means if President Obama really means it when he says that Syrian use of chemical weapons is a red line because the Brits, the French, and the Israelis all now think that they've used chemicals and apparently sarin, which is a particularly nasty chemical agent. Um, I have no idea what's going to happen if uh, an incident which is going on right now as we speak uh, around the Senkaku Islands where there's several dozen Chinese and Japanese vessels in a kind of scrum uh, with a lot of inflamed rhetoric on both sides turns nasty. I mean, this is all kind of contingent and uncertain. Um, and I think that's, that's a real challenge for military professionals. Because, you know, we're not in a situation, the kind of situation we were in after Vietnam, where, say, the United States Army could come home and say, okay, we're going to go back to real soldiering, which is being in Germany, and worrying about the Red Army, which has built itself up a lot while we've been off in Vietnam. And they could get very focused on that, uh, put a lot of effort and attention to it, and, and be quite successful in developing an army that was very well suited for that, quite well suited for knocking over Saddam's army in 1991, not as well suited for other things. I, I just don't think that kind of simplicity is there. The last thing I'll, I'll say is that's, again, one of the reasons I think why it's important to do history. As, uh, this, it's an apocryphal remark attributed to Don Kagan, great professor of ancient history at uh, Yale, that history is much more imagination than any Pentagon scenario writer. And I think that's true. Even if he didn't say it, it's true. That's uh, <laughs> uh, true. Um, I think the study of history expands the range of um, your understanding of what is possible in this wide world. Still. Yeah, you seem to be arguing for a large degree of continuity in American way of war. I'm wondering how you are the possibility of discontinuity. For example, pulling out nationalism 
influencing 1861 Civil War or peacetime mobilization during the Cold War or most recently an all-volunteer army? Is there not the possibility that the army that fought the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq is fundamentally different and it is its own American way of war than the citizen armies or the, the continental army of the American Revolution, so that there are American ways yeah, I, I mean, I, I would take that, and uh, for sure some things, you know, kind of trickle out. On, on the other hand, that American army that went to war in Iraq was shaped very much by the kinds of things that you study at the Army War College. And you're under the understanding of war that's imparted there. Uh, maybe some of you may remember the, uh, the term phase four. That's, the Army likes to think in terms of four, actually five phases of preparing for war. Phase four is kind of cleaning up afterwards. And I remember lecturing at the Army War College, and I was talking about the fact that they do it, still do an enormous amount with the Civil War, which is still very much part of the U.S. Army's consciousness. And I said, you know, I think it's great that you do staff rides to Chancellorsville, but you really should do phase four of the Civil War. So what's phase four of the Civil War? Well, phase four of the Civil War is at least a century from Appomattox to the Civil Rights Acts, at least, probably longer than that. And, you know, I've just got these completely befuddled <laughs> looks. Part of the problem is their concept of what war is, even though these are people who are, you know, I'm sure can tweet and uh, are on Facebook, is still in some ways shaped by a certain conception of war which goes back, I would say, to the 19th century. So for sure it changes. But, but I think the way I'd rather think about it is that there are layers. And there are new layers that keep on being added. That doesn't mean that the old layers really go away. Some of them may subside, but some of them are still there as other stuff keeps on, keeps on getting added. And I'm not sure that they're really um, utterly definitive breaks in, in continuity. Elliot, right I think time. your uh, excellent presentation proved what I said earlier, that I've never seen anyone who better incorporates that as a history strategy and statecraft <coughs> in one place. So thank you very much. I, I highly recommend everyone Please join me in thanking you.